This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. Welcome, guys. Hey, it's Clint Coons here with Anderson Business Advisors. And in this episode, we're going to be talking to someone who I've interviewed in the past. His name is Seth Williams from retipster.com. He's a phenomenal land flipper. But more importantly, what we decided to do as well is not only talk about the flipping side, we're going to bring on one of his top students, Neil Clements, who is a land developer, and he finds opportunities there. So you're going to get the best of both worlds when we're going to be discussing land investing, how to find the deals, but more importantly, how to maximize those deals as well. And if you haven't yet checked out Seth's website, I highly encourage you to go to reitipster.com. It's a wealth of information on there, although I do take umbrance with a few of the things he says about LLCs doing it yourself, but we will give him a pass for that on, on this episode. Other than that, Seth, thanks for coming on. Hey, hey, nice. And Neil, I'm glad you're here as well. Hey, Seth, why don't we start off? Why don't you tell us a little bit about where land is at right now? Because in this market, you know, with prices and, and uh, interest rates, what are you seeing right there as far as opportunities are concerned? And where, where are your students looking for deals? Yeah, absolutely. So the land business has changed quite a bit uh, since the pandemic hit. So it used to be, you know, back when I started in this business, it was a very simple kind of one track approach where you would get a list of landowners in whatever state and county that you're working in. And you would send them a piece of direct mail asking them to call you back and talk more if they wanted to sell. Or you could just send them an offer. We call them blind offers in our space. And uh, we could make these offers super low and it worked super well. Like a lot of people would sell their land at these just bargain basement prices. And uh, it's not that that can't be done, but it's getting harder and harder to find that kind of thing without coming to the table with some something else to sweeten the deal, whether that's a higher offer price or you know some kind of a creative strategy to, you know rather than just making an offer for like 10 to 30% of market value, make an offer of like 40, 50, 60% of market value, maybe even higher than that. And you can do that if you have some kind of a pivot once you own the property. And, you know, one of those pivots, for example, that I've uh, explored over this past couple of years is building a self-storage facility. So that's one way you could do it if you wanted to build something or you could give it, uh, get the land entitlements so that you don't actually do any of the work yourself, but you set it up for the next guy, the next person that you sell it to. So they can just basically shovel ready and kind of get, get right into the property and they know exactly what they can do with it. They don't have to rezone it. They don't have to figure out what they have to do next. It's just ready to go. Or you could do what uh, what guys like Neil are doing, where they buy a larger tract of land and they do what's called a minor subdivide. And the benefit with a minor subdivide, I won't get too much far into this because Neil, he's really the expert at that. But the benefit of doing that in certain states and certain counties is that if the child parcel, so the final product that you end up with is a certain size, oftentimes it's like over 10 acres in a lot of areas, then it there's not a whole lot of red tape. You don't have to get the county's permission to do this. You can just do it. It's super simple. And uh, in order to do that, the, you know, the original parent parcel has to be large enough for this to make sense. But that's one strategy where people are able to offer a lot, like close to its full market value. And that's okay because when they're done with it, they're going to sell it for a whole lot more than that original uh, parent parcel cost. All right. So last time we talked, you were buying land at discounts and then yeah. turning around, holding it, banking it, and then then selling it. Yep. So what I'm hearing now is those opportunities, the discount opportunities have kind of dried up. 
So, so you've shifted and it's more about value add, just like you would with uh, a real estate investing. Is that, is that? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say they've dried up. Those opportunities are definitely still out there. It's just, mm-hmm. it's what we call like the lowest hanging fruit. So it's getting more and more okay. competitive to get those deals. You have to send out a lot more mail or do some kind of other marketing strategy to find those. And rather than offering like 10% of market value and getting it, it would be more like 40% of market value, give or take. Um, so it just, uh, it also depends a lot on like the size of it and where it is and the market and all kinds of stuff, as I'm sure you know. But basically, it's just uh, because more land investors are doing this now, a lot of house flippers and wholesalers have started moving into land because they see the opportunity. And it's, uh, frankly, much more fertile ground than houses, no pun intended. But uh, because of that, it's just made it, uh, you have to, you can't just do, well, take that back. I almost say you can't just do direct mail with low offers. You can, but if you want to get a lot more deals under your belt, it helps to be able to offer more with some kind of value-add strategy if you want to do that extra work or hit it with some other type of marketing strategy, whether that's cold calling or ringless voicemail or text messaging, which is stuff that no land investor did five or 10 years ago, but a lot of them are doing it now. Because if you just send mail like everybody else is doing, some people don't read their mail. You know, Some people just throw their mail away before they even open it. But if you hit them with a text or a ringless voicemail or a phone call, maybe you'll get a captive audience there. So people just have to be more creative. And I think the world of land investors is sort of slowly starting to look more like the world of household sailors. We're having to do a lot of the same things that household sailors have been doing for years. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. So is there any particular avatar that you think is an ideal candidate or a land seller that you should target? Or is it just cross support? They got property. I think everybody's got property, but typically you'll see a lot of, uh, you know, older owners, people who are maybe in their 40s, 50s, 60s, up there a little bit. And it does actually help to understand that because demographically speaking, you know, depending on the age, they may be more likely to answer mail versus a text message versus an email versus a ringless voicemail. So, and as with any marketing, a lot of this stuff is kind of theory. It's hard to like really know it definitively. But another point on that is, you know, when you start switching your marketing to something else, even if it's just one other channel, like, texting, for example, um, you know, there's a, a different kind of person that you'll reach that you'll never hit if you just stick with mail all the time. So uh, what a lot of people are doing out of them saying is they're doing like multiple channels, which is frankly something that a lot of household sailors do too, because they have to. Mm-hmm. But uh, land investors, I don't, I don't want to say they have to yet, but they'll probably get a lot more opportunities if they're willing to go there and deal with a more complex marketing machine like that. So then with this value-add approach, Neil, this is where you come in, because as I understand it, you went through his course and you absorbed all that information. And it sounds like you said, hey, this this flipping stuff, there's probably uh, another way to make money at it. And so why don't you tell us a little bit what you started doing, how you're finding success now? Absolutely. Yeah. So kind of like Seth said, a lot of people are transitioning from house flipping to land flipping. I'm one of those who started house flipping, got pretty successful at it, and then realized there was this whole blue ocean of, you know, untapped potential in land investing. And so I, I'm a realtor and then also do house flips and also do land flips. And out of all of those, I found land flips, especially minor land subdivisions to be by far the most lucrative, um, for dollar per hour return and in the whole nine yards, time invested, money invested, et cetera, leverage. And so with land subdivisions, we're essentially just operating off the basic premise that as you increase the amount of acres, your price per acre drops. As you decrease the amount of acres, your price per acre skyrockets up because there's so much demand at the lower acreage points 
whether that be half acre, one acre, two acre, even up to 10 acres. So much so that, you know, for example, you might find you're selling one acre for 50 to 100,000, where you would only sell 10 acres at maybe 20 an acre to get up to 200,000. So you're literally, there's such a discrepancy in demand. There's such a discrepancy in affordability that it's a bit, it's a very unique scenario that can be targeted with land investors like us to go after properties that you can literally just, you know, add the value by doing the subdivide. That is, you know, you talk about other industries like apartments or other, you know, categories where you add value by raising the rents or other forced depreciation strategies. Uh, the forced depreciation strategy with land that I do is is land subdivisions and adding value by appealing to a new demographic with smaller pieces of land. Okay, so that assumes a few things, though, right? That the land itself is zoned, so you can subdivide it, correct? And then you got to have people there but, that want to buy that because I, you, you're not going to be near, well, you're going to be outside of the city, right? And you're typically in the county when you're doing these types of deals. Correct. That's correct. And so whenever you get outside of the city, you're outside of city limits, you don't have any kind of zoning. And so whenever you get outside of city limits, you don't have to necessarily deal with the cities and the city's regulations. In most circumstances, you're dealing with the county's regulations. And where I am at in Texas, uh, Seth mentioned it earlier, um, you have an exemption to any kind of county interference, uh, said nicely, right, interference in the subdividing process, as long as you have at least 10 acres. And so a few examples of what we're doing is we'll go out and buy, say, 30 acres, and we'll make three 10-acre pieces. And all we have to do is just have our surveyor survey that out, and we're free to sell it. We have we have no county intervention. No city has jurisdiction on it. We don't have to rezone. We don't even have to do entitlements. Um, that is one opportunity to do what's called a minor subdivision. And a minor subdivision is essentially just saying that you're not installing a road. You're not really installing many utilities. You're, you're not necessarily improving the land by doing anything else other than just doing paperwork, meaning a survey. So you're not even doing a perk test on the property. Cause I mean, it's county. So I still be yeah. Now in the areas I work in in Texas, North and East Texas, we don't even do perk tests. Hmm. They're not a necessity. The soil here is fine for that. The one issue that we have though is water accessibility. Mm-hmm. And so on almost every single property, we're doing a hydraulic analysis. That is, that's probably the, the most risk that we take on is a 500 to $3,000 hydraulic analysis to make sure we can get water. And other than that, um, we can install septic systems uh, without having to do a perk test. And electric is actually pretty good in the areas that I work in. So rarely are we having to run electric lines. It's more often that water is the limiting factor. Got it. Yeah. So this, I had a, a very similar question the first time I talked to Neil about this is the perk test issue. Like, isn't that important? Does that matter? And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I was, I was shocked just to learn that in different parts of the country, like these big things that hold up land deals in more water laden parts of the country are non-issues in areas where there is no water. And uh, <laughs> another, another big thing mm-hmm. that, uh, that I kind of took away from it is that a lot of the stuff that you would have to learn to do these kind of minor subdivisions in one part of the country I don't want to say it doesn't apply at all to other places, but a lot of it is very uh, geographic specific to that area. I know one big takeaway I, I learned from Neil was this idea of looking for exemptions to subdividing. So mm-hmm. I actually, uh, when I learned this whole trick about in Texas, how, you know, if it's over 10 acres and there's no county approval required. And I took that and I started looking in Michigan to figure out, well, I wonder if counties here are similar to that. And I just type in the name of the county. 
and then subdividing exceptions. And you'll find a big, long, boring PDF with tons of stuff in it. And um, there's another little cool AI tool called Claude. It's kind yeah. of like chat GPT, but it's even better for this particular thing. You can take an entire like 200 page PDF and dump it into Claude. I just did this earlier today and say, I'm trying to do a minor subdivision in this county and I'm trying to figure out if I'm allowed to do that. Can you review this and look for any exemptions and let me know what I should be paying attention to? And it'll do a beautiful job of summarizing everything you need to know based on the PDF you upload. So anyway, it's kind of a cool thing I learned after talking with Neil and using Claude. I just came across that. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And we look, like Seth said, we look for those exemptions. And so just for example, just just in a, a radius of maybe 100 or 200 miles in North Texas, you can go from counties maybe in the West that have no subdivision standards at all. Meaning you're in the Wild West. You can do whatever you want. You can do half acre, one acre. It does not matter as long as you can fit a septic. On the other hand, you go to some counties that are highly restricted where, you know, if you're anything below 10 acres, any properties result below 10 acres, you know, you're going to have to do entitlements. You have to plat, hydraulics, drainage studies, topography, you know, the whole nine yards. And so there's one level of that exemption you need to look at because there's also in some counties you can do five acre lots. And so like Seth said, make sure whatever county you're looking in, I mean, you could literally go five miles being a different county and it would be completely different regulations or you could split counties. And then the next level to this beyond an exempt subdivision is actually, like I said, in a a subdivision you have to plat and you can still do that. I've done it several times. It's just a lot more headache and it's a lot more work and it's a lot more expensive. Yeah. So when you're going in there and let's say we're, we're not, we're not finding those deals that it's just free to go in, cut them up and it's okay, but you have to actually do the entitlement work. What's the ability to, to flip that? I mean, you're, you're finding a developer, uh, of course, that you create in your, your buyer's pool and then you reach out to them. Hey, I've got this deal over here. It's a two acre parcels. And it's all, it's got all the entitlements done. And then how far do you go with that as far as making that build ready? Most of my projects to date, I would still mm-hmm. consider minor. And so if we, if we start getting into properties that, for instance, major subdivides, so entitlements, maybe, I don't know, 22 acre lots or something like that. Once you really get above 10 lots, you're talking more about major subdivisions. And so that's, I guess, step three as a land flipper. You know, step one is just buy below market, flip it. Step two is do a minor. Step three is do a major. And so my specialty right now and what I've done is minor subdivisions. And so the people that we're marketing those anywhere from two to 10 lots to, a lot of times we just try to get top market value and sell them off individually. And sometimes we care the note. Sometimes we'll sell them off and they'll get a bank loan. It just depends on the circumstance. We've also done deals where we've sold it directly to builders, especially one acre lots or in demand for that purpose. So there's a pretty broad buyer pool and there's a lot of exit strategies. And really the neat thing is kind of like Seth said with that diminishing ability to buy properties that say 20% of market value, you know, on average, I'm buying properties at 90 to 100% of current market value. And that's not necessarily anything to brag about. Of course, it's more risk for me. Um, yet at the same time, when, when my competition is buying at, in my area, probably 50 to 75% of market value, and I can call an owner, or we can do cold calling, I call an owner and offer them full market value, it's pretty easy to stand out on that. Yeah. So, so in your area, you know, in Texas, mineral deeds, huge thing down there. Do you sell everything, surface and mineral rights, or do you hold back the mineral rights and maybe try to parlay that into some more money on your deed? 
Yeah, we haven't had any properties yet that had any lucrative mineral opportunities. And so as of yet, we have not kept the minerals. I could have probably in every single deal that we've ever done. And so that could be a point of improvement on my part. Yet I haven't seen any lucrative mineral rights to this point, but maybe that comes in the future <laughs> as far as the opportunity. About, have either of you seen people now that are buying land or you done it yourself and then you harvest the timber before you turn around and flip the property and make more profit that way? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah there's, um, I can't say I know like a ton of examples of this, but it absolutely happens. It, the reason I don't have a lot of examples is because it's not just about having timber. It's about what kind of timber is it? How mature is it? How close is it to a sawmill? There's a lot of different factors that go into this, but if all the stars align, absolutely. I mean, you can get timber that's worth more than the land itself. And then you harvest that and then you sell the land on top of it. So it's one of those cool, uh, cool opportunities that is amazing if you can find one in the right location and, you know, everything comes together like that. Neil, I was actually uh, curious. You should share some of the numbers on some of these subdivide deals. Like what would be a typical acquisition sure. price and then the cost of doing these uh, things to chop it up and then your sale price? And then like how many of these a year are you doing? Just to give people an idea for like how, how big this is. Yeah. So I'll give you maybe a home run example and then I'll give you an average deal. So home run example would be buy um, eight acres for 200,000, 25,000 an acre or so. And then sell one acre lots, seven one acre lots off that because you got to dedicate. It was platted. You got to dedicate some of the county. So seven one acre lots at um, seventy five thousand a piece, and so that's about five fifty approximately. So buy for two hundred, sell for five fifty with less than fifty thousand improvements. So net profit of three hundred thousand. Wow. And so that's an example of a home run deal that we've completed, you know, a handful of times in the past year or so. An average deal for us probably looks more like a purchase of say one fifty divide it in half, maybe a 10 acre piece divided into two five acre pieces, again, go through platting, and then sell the resulting ones for 260, 110,000 spread with about 10,000 of platting cost. So net profit somewhere around 90 to 100. That's an average deal. And we're turning one or two of those. Yeah, that was gonna be my next question. How long is your money tied up in the deal before you're turning it? Well, that's that's the other thing. And so if we do an exempt subdivision, meaning we don't have to plat, we don't have to do entitlements, our money's really only tied up for four months. If we do platting, the platting process itself, just from the county's <laughs> you know, review of everything, um, takes four to five months for approval. So it's pretty darn slow. And so total hold time for that's probably closer to a year. And so whenever we have the opportunity not to plat, you better bet we don't. However, you know, we're not going to give up an additional six figures of income just to do an exempt subdivision versus not. And so my my toughest part of my business is obviously the cash outlay, which which you pointed to, Clint, is, you know, if you're doing one or two of these a month and you're buying, say, two hundred to five hundred thousand dollar purchase price, and then I'm getting bank loans, I'm not partnering with anybody on these, obviously you can see the cash outlay gets pretty high pretty quick. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, you, you've been mentioning a few terms here. I think we should go back just a bit and and define for people. When you're talking about entitlements, can you explain what that means for someone who's watching this and listening in and has never been through that process before? Exactly. Yeah. So entitlements is just simply uh, approval from a jurisdiction, a city, a county, whoever it is to do what you want to do. You're entitled to be able to put your mobile home park here. You're entitled to be able to subdivide this and get a building permit for it. Because uh, that is the major reason to get entitlements, in my opinion, in Texas for what I'm doing is if we don't get our entitlements, then nobody can build there. 
But yeah, entitlements are simply just going through the city or county's processes to get approved for what you're trying to do so that you can actually execute on that. But the beauty of entitlements is you're you're doing paperwork. And so a lot of things that we're talking about here today, we're not necessarily talking about doing the dirt work. We're not necessarily talking about building a road. We're not talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars of improvements to these properties. Um, we're talking about partnering with other vendors, such as a surveyor, an engineer, and, and the city and other partners to literally just do paper subdivisions. And, and that's the power in this is is having the knowledge. And that's why it's so important for us to have this podcast today and get this knowledge out. Because like Seth was saying, like you start looking at your county's guidelines and your land investing strategy and, and can just blow up once you see the opportunity. Well, I mean, okay. So when you're talking about entitlements, I mean, still it's making my head spin. I'm thinking, all right, that's, you make it sound easy, but it's not that easy. So how does someone get up to speed to figure all this stuff out with the county? In my experience, I had to do this with my self-storage facility. And the situation was, uh, I bought this vacant lot for 69,000 bucks and it was zoned residential. I wanted to change it to commercial. And then I also wanted to get my plan for my civil engineer approved so I could build what I wanted to build there. And so there are basically two hurdles. There was changing the zoning and then there was getting my specific plan approved. Either one of those things, could they could have said no to it. And my plans would have been totally ruined and I couldn't do it. And uh, luckily they said yes to both, but the the trouble with entitlements, the reason why people are willing to pay so much more for a property that has entitlements is because it gives them certainty about what they can do. They don't have to do what I did, where you put all this money down on a property and you're like, I don't know if I can actually use this for anything. I'll have to find out. And just putting together my uh, plans for my civil engineer was $20,000. It's actually not even that much compared to some plans. But I had to spend 20 grand just to see if they would say yes to it. They could have said no, and then I would have just wasted all that money. So anybody who buys land without entitlements, they're kind of rolling the dice a little bit because they don't really know what they can do. So if you can get those questions answered for somebody else, for the next guy, you better believe that's worth a lot because they don't have to wonder. They don't have to gamble on whether or not they can actually do this. And I know when I, the reason I was able to get comfortable with it is because before I bought it, I called up the uh, the township uh, clerk, the person who was in charge of getting this stuff approved. And I just asked him, like, here's what I'm trying to do. Like, am I crazy? Like, can you think of any reason why this wouldn't happen? What would you say is the percentage likelihood of this being done? Realizing that it's not really up to him, but he still knows generally what to expect. And if he says, you know, Seth, I think there's probably a 60% chance this will get done. Then my question is, okay, well, why isn't it a hundred percent? Like, what is the uncertainty there? What, what else do I need to figure out? And what are the questions do I have to answer to really be confident in this? And at the end of the day, like, I can't be 100% confident, but I can at least understand what I'm up against and what kind of hurdles I have to get over and what the uh, the chances of, of failure are. So there's a lot of that stuff you can ask before you even buy a property just by making some phone calls. Yeah, I mean, so that's a great point, right? What he just said, and Neil, that you're hitting on is that don't buy it first have an idea for the land you want to make the offer on, figure out what you can do with it, make sure you can do what you want to do, or you got a good sense for it. Then you go and buy. Is that where you're going, Neil? Yeah, absolutely. That's what I give yourself a good option or a termination period or due diligence period. Because if you don't have that, then you could get stuck with a bad property. And so that's, that is what I consider crucial. If, if you're going to be subdividing, you have to have a hefty due diligence period. We typically do at least 60 days because by the time we get our hydraulics done, which is our water studies, 
by the time we get any kind of preliminary review for platting with the county, if we're doing entitlements, we get our drainage studies or topography studies. I mean, we've eaten up that whole 60 days. And if we're buying land at say 100% of market value, you know, we don't, we don't want to be stuck with a piece of land that we can't sell and at least break even with. And so if you give me the opportunity to say, maybe make two or $300,000 on a land flip by doing a subdivision and the county's already preliminary said yes from preliminary meetings in my worst case scenario is break even or maybe make a little bit of money. I mean, I'll, I'll take that nine times out of 10, maybe 10 times out of 10. So, but we have to, like, like you said, Seth, you have to go through those processes. The good counties will have a department of development, the big counties to where you can do these preliminary meetings. The smaller counties, they won't, and it really is the Wild West, and you're really just biting the bullet until it actually gets approved or denied. So the question I was going to ask to both of you is remote investment. So, you know, buying properties remotely, pretty much, I mean, it's a house, okay? There's not that much that goes into it compared to, I imagine, land investing, such as you don't know, for example, here in Washington State, you know, wetlands, huge issue. You You could look at a piece of property and say, this property has no issues with wetlands, but the county will say, oh, no, there's a wetland issue here. And you're like, where? I don't see any standing water. So, so how do you do that remotely? Or is it even possible you recommend it, guys? Yeah, I mean, my, I'll give my brief thoughts. My brief yeah. thoughts is land ID mapping software. I mean, that's going to get you 90% of the way there to be able to see all that. Second would be local county, you know, department of developments and such like that. But yeah, that's my two cents on it. Yeah, I would agree. The land ID has a nice wetlands mapper, which is ultimately just taken from the national wetlands mapper. It's the same data. Uh, land ID just kind of makes it look prettier and easier to use. The problem, though, and I, I hate this about wetlands, is that uh, that map is not that accurate. It's wrong all the time, where it'll tell you certain things are wetlands when they're not and vice versa. The only way to really know for sure is to get a wetland delineation and get somebody to go out there and walk the property and test the soil. And it's it's very, uh, very cumbersome. So when you're doing something like land flipping, there's kind of a uh, calculated risk to it. You kind of have to decide, like, is it worth it to waste the time? Could I have a plan B if there are wetlands there? How much am I putting into this thing and how much do I stand to make? And I know with something like what Neil's doing, when you're paying 90 to 100 percent of uh, market value, I would totally get a wetland delineation on that because you want to be very sure that there's not going to be some gotcha at the end of there. And given the the amount of money you're putting into that and also, you know, the option period or the due diligence period that you have before you buy it, that's an easy cost to justify. And even the, the time it takes to do it is easy to justify. On the flip side, if you're just flipping the thing and if you're buying it for 30% of market value, um, you kind of have to decide, is it worth it? I mean, can I still have speed and agility here? And, and is there something else I could do it on the back end? And usually looking at the wetlands mapper, looking at surrounding properties, even go into like the USDA soil map and understanding what is the soil type in this area? Like, is it likely to be wetlands or not? And understanding that kind of stuff. And uh, you can usually get pretty darn accurate without actually having it spelled out right in front of you. If you just understand, like, do the neighbors have wetlands? Is there a house next door? Doesn't necessarily mean your house is clear, but it's kind of a clue that the area is probably okay. So, but yeah, it's, uh, that's probably been one of my biggest dilemmas in general when I'm working in states with wetlands is that issue right there. Cause I want to be totally certain. And it's one of those things. The only way to do that is to go the slow, expensive way to find out. So that, but is remote, would you say investing in land, you know, is it possible mm-hmm. for people? Oh yeah. That's, uh, 
for me to figure out if there's a wetlands, I do not need to be there to do that. I mean, there's a wetland delineation consultants all over the country. You just call them up, tell them where your property is and have them go do it. I mean, it's better them than me anyway, even if I live next door to it. Okay. Yeah. To give you perspective, Seth set up a mastermind group with his community and I'm a part of that, obviously. And two of the guys in my mastermind group, uh, one is in South America, lives there permanently, invests remotely. The other one lives in London and invests all over the United States for land. And so to answer your question very simply, yes. And I, and I know guys doing it at a really high level who live in other countries who are, who are even doing this. How are they finding the deals? I mean, in the opportunities. Mailing. They're both primarily doing mailing. I'm primarily doing cold calling, but I've seen other people do SMS. And so I, I do think what Seth said earlier at the beginning of the call, as far as land flipping is getting more competitive. And if you follow what wholesalers are doing, which is significantly more competitive than land flipping, ultimately land flippers are going to essentially look almost like wholesalers as far as the strategies that we're going to have to take on to find these properties and and the strategies that we're going to have to do to stay competitive. For sure. Okay. So I'm curious for both of you, what your responses are going to be here. What are the top three things if I wanted to start doing this that I need to be aware of so I don't lose my ass? Yeah, you need to you need to know your stuff. And so it, it all starts with a deal. So first off, you you need to find a deal to even do it with, because if you spend a ton of effort up front researching all these guidelines, making all these phone calls, like you can be the smartest person, but also the stupidest because you don't have a deal. Right. To some extent. And so find a deal, meet with your local counties you're going to be doing deals in, ask them what it takes. Like what are you going to need? What does the reviews process look like? And then partner with good people, whether that's a real estate agent, whether that's a surveyor, like build your team around yourself while you're searching for the deals. And you do those three things well, plus give yourself a good due diligence period. I mean, worst case scenario, you lock up a bad property and you lose a hundred bucks in due diligence and then you learned a ton. And so like my recommendation would be there's no substitute for actually putting a deal under contract and then figuring it all out. Yeah, totally. I know uh, I'm actually working with another guy in Arizona who's doing a, a similar thing uh, to what Neil's doing in Texas. But interestingly, me, he and I are looking in a new county right now, a county he's never worked in. And we're basing the entire decision on whether or not we even work in that county on whether or not we can find a good surveyor. Like if we can't find a good one mm. who is reasonably priced, who can do this in a reasonable amount of time, then uh, we're not going to go there. And we spent uh, a bunch of time trying to find, you know, we called probably three or four of them. And not surprisingly, some of them like don't even exist. Like they don't answer their phone. So it's like, well, that's not going to work. So we keep calling other ones. And we, we finally found one with a really grumpy old lady who answered the phone and like yelled at both of us, but she seemed pretty competent and like they knew what they were doing. So we're kind of like, you know, like, everything else looks good. We don't like love her as a person, but it's probably going to be fine. So we're moving forward based on the fact that we could find that professional. So certain key players are extremely important. Like this does not work if you can't find them. And then also just your ability to understand land values. Neil's in a, in a great position because he's a you know a licensed agent in Texas. So he, he can see comp data that nobody else can see if they don't have MLS access because Texas is a non-disclosure state. And uh, that plays a lot into understanding the land value today and then what it's going to look like after it's all split up and sold. So he's got a, a fierce competitive advantage there that a lot of other land investors don't have. So kind of, as you mentioned, you know, if you don't have a license or a good uh, realtor on your side who understands land, find them. They're kind of like a big component similar to the surveyor thing. 
So how um, how much could a realtor help me as a land investor? If I was, say, investing in Arizona, Pima County, for example, I said, oh, I'm going to try to buy some property down there. I don't, I don't know if there is much land, but do I find a realtor? Because I'm in Washington State, do I find look for an agent? Is there certain things that I need, questions I should be asking of an agent, if you think that's a smart way to go, to maybe get started? Yeah. Well, I know uh, Arizona, I believe that is a disclosure state. So unlike Texas, you can actually see past sales and what property is sold for. So, so that's helpful. But, um, but even so, I mean, having a good agent who can just take that selling process off your hands and also give you a lot of feedback on, are you on the right track? Like, do you really understand the different uh, local issues or benefits of the property, uh, in, you know, in this area? There's a lot of stuff when you're looking at Google Earth from across the country that you just don't know because you're not in that market. Mm -hmm. So having a person or two or three who really understands those issues and can even visit the property and see stuff that you're not going to see through a computer screen is super helpful. So yeah, I mean, I I would always try to get an agent if you can, just that in places like Texas, there's like even more of a reason because they can kind of see behind the scenes in a way that the average civilian can't. Got it. Neil, would you want to add anything to that as far as approaching an agent? If, if I was to approach you and say you weren't doing it yourself, what would you be looking for, it, you know, from, from an agent standpoint? Yeah, so I'm, I'm definitely looking for somebody who does land and who does land on a daily basis. And I can't overstate that enough because I work at a pretty big market center in uh, South Dallas. And yeah, the, the amount of agents who do residential real estate versus who do land, you're talking about a very slim amount of agents who actually know how to do land. And so uh, as a land investor, you will get in a lot of trouble by hiring a real estate agent who only does houses to try to sell your land. Some of the best flipping opportunities that I have ever seen as a land investor hit the MLS were from residential agents who did not know land and did not know exactly what we're talking about on this call. And those are some of the best deals that I've ever bought. And so you want to talk about a missed opportunity that an investor could have had or an owner could have had to maybe double the sales price. You better make sure you hire the right agent. And how do you find them? Well, there's several different sources, several different, you know, search criteria, whether that's Realtors Land Institute, whether that's several other resources I know Seth has on his website for searching for agents, but especially in Texas, where it's a non-disclosure state. You're, you're essentially just guessing if you don't have a realtor on your side or access to MLS. All right. Since you're on here, I'd like to know, how did you get in contact with Seth? What brought that together? So I was at the point that I contacted Seth and, and did his program. Um, I had already been pretty decently successful at this strategy, had already done it for at least a year or so. What I was looking for in Seth's program is I was looking to learn how to do mailing. And so that's ultimately the reason I decided to sign up for it. And so he essentially gave me the bare bones, the templates and everything that I needed to do a successful mailer campaign, just just the stuff you don't know. And especially if you're going to spend, say, $10,000 on a mailer campaign uh, to purchase his course at a fraction of that is, is kind of no brainer. And then him and I uh, got to talk a little bit further through one of his chats that he has through his program. And ultimately, he was want to know a little bit more about land subdivisions and that's pretty much all that I do at this point. Um, there's maybe only one or two properties ever that I've not subdivided. And so we got connected that way. And yeah, that's how I ended up here today. So grateful yeah. to know him. And now you're part of his mastermind? Yeah, he's got yeah he's got a mastermind for people who have went through his program. Um, and so, yeah, part of that mastermind and happy to be doing that with the group. Yeah. That's awesome, Seth. You bring a testimonial with you to a... Uh... <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> now, I'll, I'll pay you for this afterwards. Don't worry. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, though, I mean, you and I have known each other for, for probably four or five years now, and you deliver solid content. Oh, and thanks. I think that people that do take the opportunity to go to your site and see what you have to offer and go through your course, it's only going to benefit them. So if I'm watching this right now, listening to it, and I want to get a hold of you, what do I need to do? Well, if you go to retipster.com or go to just search for RE Tipster anywhere on social media. You'll probably find me there. But on retipster.com, if you scroll to the bottom, there's a little contact uh, button in the footer. It's almost kind of hidden uh, by design, but you can click on that and send me an email there. Uh, if you're looking for land investing stuff, the land investing masterclass, that's kind of like the flagship course that, that Neil went through and that uh, has been out there for years now. Spend a lot of time updating that as the business changes and as new things uh, come into the industry. And uh yeah, happy to talk to anybody who wants to learn more about it. Yeah, and you know, in what you just said there, you you know, talking to people, that's one thing I think, you know, where you're at, you you built up this following, but you're still personable and you're approachable. Yeah. That a lot of people that get to where you're at, you know, they're they're pushing everyone off on other individuals and yeah. you don't do that. You you know, you always respond to my emails. If I need to call you, you'll pick up the phone and so that's one of the reasons why I wanted you on here again. And I think people should definitely reach out to you and, and uh, check out what you have to offer if they're thinking about land flipping. Yeah, thanks, Clint. Appreciate that very much. It's great to be back. So, Guys, thanks for coming on. I truly appreciate this and uh, all the best with that investing. And I hope some people definitely hit your site. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 